Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss events in Ukraine and Europe, looking at the visit to Kiev of the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and Romania. We'll also analyse some shocking reports coming from the front lines, and put your questions to our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 16th of June, day 113. Today, I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor Venetia Rainey, and The Telegraph's Russia Correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Venetia and Dom for the latest news from the front lines. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's, um, well, Kiev will come on to, if I may, in a moment, because that's more uh, political, uh, just, just as interesting, but uh, not arguably um, quite as many fireworks there, thankfully, today. But just elsewhere in the in the country, there's still a lot of heavy fighting going on in the Severodonetsk city. The latest British defence intelligence estimate is that Russia has now dropped all the bridges to the west um, to linking Severodonetsk with with Lysychansk. Uh, they think that most of the Ukrainian fighters have got out of the city. However, there will still be some defenders and, and, and thousands of civilians in there. So there's heavy, heavy fighting still going on. However, the, the defence intelligence estimate also says that, that the fighting there in the Donbass from the Russia side is increasingly ad hoc and using severely undermanned groups, those, their words. They're saying some of the battalion tactical groups that at the start of the war, and well, the, the, the term suggests should be 600, 700, 800 people, something like that, in some cases are now down to about 30 just because of the, the wearing down that, that Russia has suffered over the, over the last few months. Um, and they are increasingly traveling on on foot because the, the vehicles just aren't there. We've spoken about this before, about how how they're as, as hard as the fighting is for Ukraine in the east. There hasn't been a big Russian breakout, partly, we think, because the, the vehicles just are not there. They're calling up T-62 tanks, for goodness sake. I don't think they, they've got the maneuver force to actually be able to, to break out. So a lot of hard fighting, a lot of attrition on both sides. It's it's uh, very infantry heavy. And uh, you know, a nasty, grinding war of attrition. Briefly, elsewhere, we should we should 
not take our eye off. We, we have not taken our eye off. And we'll, we will look at this in greater detail. I don't think today because there's so much else going on. But we've got to keep our eye on Kurzon. There's been a number of counterattacks, Ukrainian counterattacks recently in that area, down to the south, Kurzon being the first major city taken by Russia in, in the war. Ukrainian forces are now thought to be between about uh, 15 to 20 kilometers from Kurzon, which is, which is incredible. And not only is that a They've, they've taken about the same amount of ground there as, as Russia have taken in the Severodonetsk pocket. So not across the whole of the Donbass, but just in that pocket that we've been looking at closely for the last few weeks. So, so there's been, a, been some good counterattacks there that we've, we've it's kind of gone largely un, unrecognised, really, because of the focus has been understandably in the Donbass. But, but that is happening and we will continue to look at that. Interestingly, there's, there are two very important dams in that part of the country which supply a lot of the water to Crimea. And and so not only is it is it part of uh, part of the Donbass anyway that, that Ukraine obviously want to get back from from Russia. But if they were to lose access to those dams and it, it could be could put the, the Crimea in a in a um, in a bit of a predicament in terms of gaining in natural resource. I'll take a pause there before we move on to donor conferences, Turkey and um, and the, the Euro Euro trio in Kiev. Thanks, Tom. Well, let's let's talk about the Eurotrio in Kiev. Venetia Roney, what's happening there? Yeah, so we, we had had whispers earlier this week that this was coming, but now they've finally arrived. Emmanuel Macron, French president, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz um, and Italian Prime Minister um, Mario Draghi. They've all gone to Europe. They took a night sleeper train and they popped up in Kiev this morning and, and then have been touring around Erpin to see the aftermath of the Russian occupation and atrocities there. Um, it's been a meeting that people have been waiting for, and they're, they're sorry, and they're set to meet Zelensky later today. This is something that people have been waiting for for a long time. This is the first time that any of these three leaders have been to Ukraine. Obviously, Boris Johnson went quite a while ago. Um, for the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, his opposition leader has already met Zelensky before him. Um, and it's significant because there's been a lot of disquiet over the pace of support from some European countries for Ukraine. Zelensky himself has called it out several times. <clears throat> Um, but we've also seen sort of fracturing within the EU about how much to support the Ukraine, how much to support Ukraine, partly over energy issues and partly over weapons supplies and partly over political membership of the EU. You might remember right at the beginning, before the invasion actually happened, before this podcast existed, um, France and Germany were very, very suspicious that Russia would actually invade. They they really tried to play down the threat. Um, the US and the UK were issuing near daily warnings towards um, the, towards February 24th. And the big players in Europe were saying, no, this isn't going to happen. You're just exacerbating things by saying it. We need to calm down the rhetoric. They were wrong, obviously. Um, and they've sort of been playing catch up a bit since then. Now, obviously, Germany has done a massive about turn and has you know unleashed lots of money for military funding and has said it's going to send lots of weapons the reality is that it sent quite a few light weapons um, but that's drying up increasingly according to Ukrainian sources and it hasn't actually delivered any heavy weaponry yet which obviously the UK and the US has been doing a lot of for France they have been sending weapons but Macron has faced some some criticism um, over his stance towards Russia. France 
traditionally has a closer relationship with Russia. You'll remember that Macron has spoken with Putin personally several times um, since the war began, trying to convince him to stop. And he made some comments earlier this month saying that the West should not be looking to humiliate Russia, that Ukraine very quickly picked up on and said, well, you know, if that's the kind of peace deal that you're looking for, um, then that's not what we're interested in. So there are a lot of fears that Macron and Schultz are in Ukraine to try and push Kiev into accepting some kind of peace deal so that everything can calm down in Europe and things can go back to how they were before, more or less. Um, Obviously, Ukraine doesn't want to accept any sort of peace deal. Macron and Schultz have been saying we're not going to make Ukraine accept anything that they don't want to accept. And all of the noises that we've been hearing today are, you know, very much in line with with what you'd expect. While touring around Erpen, they've been talking about the unimaginable cruelty of the Russians, senseless violence. Macron called up in a heroic city marked by the stigma of barbarism. Um, But, you know, that sort of political agenda is there. Macron passed a bit of graffiti saying, make Europe, not war. And he said, very moving. That's the right message. You know, they're trying to preserve European unity when clearly everyone can see that it is fracturing on multiple fronts. Um, It will be a big test to see... What, ki- what, what comes out of the EU membership um, bid that Ukraine is trying to push forward. The European Commission is set to make a recommendation tomorrow, which they are expected to recommend that the EU be recommended for membership. And then there'll be a sort of more formal ruling on the beginning of it all next week. That would be a big win for Ukraine, obviously. Um, but the weapons thing is trickier. You know, Germany has proved very hesitant, perhaps partly because of its pacifist origins, perhaps partly because their military is not able to sort of speed up the kind of deliveries that Ukraine needs. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very significant meeting and, and one that we'll watch closely. There's supposed to be a big press conference later today that we'll be looking at. Thank you very much, Venetia. Just before we move on, Natalia or Dom, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Anything to add to what Venetia has said? Yeah, if I may just jump in quickly. Uh, it should be noted, US Secretary of State for Defence Lloyd Austin hosted the third meeting of the Ukraine Defence Contact Group yesterday. It was set up three months ago to basically as a sort of you know e- eBay with guns kind of thing. Um, 50 countries attended, the, the biggest number yet. I can go into more detail shortly, but just to, just on the back of that, one of the one of the headlines was that Germany is going to provide three multiple launch rocket systems and the guided multiple launch rocket system munition. So um, maybe not time now to, to, to go into what why, what GMLRS is, but it's, it's more precise. It will hit the table you're sat at rather than the building or the, or the town you're sitting in. Um, but yeah, Germany are going to supply three. That takes a total MLRS systems to 10, four US uh, HIMARS, which is a highly high mobility artillery rocket system, and three each from the UK and Germany through the M270 version, the sort of slightly older versions. So that's 10. Ukraine earlier on this week said that they needed 300. So, you know, some some way to go. But uh, yeah, Germany are, have, have said they will supply um, heavy weapons. That was hot off the press from the from the donor conference that's, uh, that's happened yesterday, rolling into today's NATO defence ministerial that's, that's on now in, in Brussels. Thanks, Dom. And just one more question. Uh... Um, story I'd like you to comment on Venetia the, the story we had yesterday that two former US servicemen have been captured fighting the Russians uh, in Ukraine what can you tell us about this yeah this was a great story and an exclusive to the Telegraph so I'd really recommend that people read it it's up on our website now obviously um so this is thought to be the first time that Americans have been captured by the Russians. Um, these were two U.S. servicemen who were volunteering with Ukrainian forces. Um, one, Alexander Druk, was 39 and Andy Hoon was 27. Um, and they are believed to have been captured during a battle around Kharkiv. 
So we had an account from one of their fellow soldiers saying that they were in this battle. It really wasn't going well. They were hit by some anti-tank missiles. There's a lot of sort of smoke. And when the air sort of cleared, they assumed that they'd been knocked unconscious and, you know, were sort of lying somewhere dazed. But they couldn't find the bodies. And they sent back drones and they went back to the area later and they, they just never found the bodies. And then they spotted a telegram post saying that some Americans had been captured and they thought that has got to be them. They are the only Americans fighting in this area. Um, we've since had that confirmed from their families that they've gone missing. Um, and the American embassy has said that, yes, there are, they are aware of the reports. Um, so it's a pretty extraordinary story. Obviously, our listeners will be aware of what has been happening with the two British soldiers that have been captured, Aidan Eichelin and Sean Pinner. Um, they were put on, let's just call it what it is, a sham trial um, in which they were sentenced to the death penalty. Um, and we can expect that Russia will do likely something similar with these guys. One of the reasons that families wanted to go public with this, despite the sort of security risks and the sensitivity of it all, is that they wanted to make sure that the Russian authorities were aware that these people had been taken and that these two American men didn't just disappear into sort of separatist held jails or, you know, sort of summarily executed, as we've seen happen with so many Ukrainian soldiers. Um, so we'll we'll wait to see when these guys pop up again and who is holding them at the moment. But yeah, it, it's a fantastic story that we'll be following closely. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Venetia. Is there anything more from you uh, in terms of updates? No, I think that's it. There's just one more thing to mention, and it's sort of a side issue to Ukraine, but also sort of not. Um, Alexei Navalny, the main Russian opposition um, figure, Natalia will be able to tell you more about this, but he's been moved prison and he popped up in a, a more high security prison um, yesterday, which has been dubbed Russia's scariest prison. Um, yeah, Natalia can give some more details on that if you guys want. Well, thank you very much, Venetia, for your time. That was incredibly comprehensive um, and useful for our listeners. Um, I think you're right. It's probably the right time to bring uh, Natalia Vasilyeva, our Russia correspondent, in on this conversation. And Natalia, would you like to pick up that news about Alexei Navalny? Where, where has he been sent? Um, sure. We were largely expecting um, Alexei to be moved uh, since uh, a court in Russia upheld a verdict um, which sentenced him to a decade, another decade in prison. Um, and uh, according to this verdict, Alexei was supposed to be moving to a high security prison compared to a regular prison camp that he was um he was at before um his allies first uh, raised the alarm on tuesday when uh, his lawyer came to visit him at his jail and he was told that alexei was no longer there um so um it took about 24 hours before we heard the first news about him and it was confirmed and his lawyer was able to see him um at his new uh prison um which is not that far from the previous one. Um, obviously, it's a high security prison, which means that he will have uh, fewer visits with his family. Um, his communications um, with his lawyer and with the outside world might not be as, as smooth. Um, and as Vinici has mentioned, this um, this prison colony has quite a reputation for torture and beatings. So obviously, there's a, there's a cause uh, for alarm there. Thank you very much, Natalia. Coming back to uh, Ukraine then, you wrote a, a, a fairly astonishing story um, about accusations that the Kremlin is using Russian-backed uh, separatists as cannon fodder in, in, in the war. Can you tell us about that? What did you find? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, this 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 largely um, uh, largely agrees with what we have seen and reported um, earlier on in the invasion, or even in the in the broader um, Ukrainian conflict uh, in recent years. Um, uh, people who live in Russia occupied, essentially uh, Russia controlled areas in Donetsk and Lugansk were uh, called up. Um, immediately as soon as the invasion started in, in February, um, uh, we have uh, talked to families and we have heard reports of uh, men, local men in Donetsk and Luhansk, essentially snatched off the streets or at their workplaces and sent off to the front. Um, in a lot of cases, um, we know that those men were poorly equipped, uh, they were poorly trained. And quite astonishing for for um, for a part of the world which is so tightly controlled by Russia, um, they've been they've been sporadic protests from women uh, from from the wives of some of those conscripts who um, uh, have been saying that um, they um, have no idea what's what happened to the man. They've not been in touch. Um, uh, all they know is that their men have been uh, poorly trained and poorly equipped, and there's a there's a danger to their lives. Um, uh, now, the, the, the report that you mentioned, it's, um, it's, uh, it's based on two things. There is, um, there's one uh, audio, there's one audio recording, uh, which was intercepted by the Ukrainian intelligence agency, um, which showed uh, two Russian intelligence officers describing, um, uh, describing using um, uh, prisoners of war. Um, sorry, I've just jumped off to, to, to another story. Um, Anyhow, um, yeah, sorry about that. Um, uh, going back to the separatist control areas, yes, obviously it's um, uh, there are accusations of, of the Kremlin using them as cannon fodder, um, and one of the most recent evidence of that is uh, uh, a report from uh, Dnipro that um, our correspondent Nicola Smith was able to get yesterday when she went to a hospital where Ukrainian military are being treated. Um, um, and one officer told her of his encounter with uh, separatists in Luhansk and how astonished he was by just how uh, poorly equipped they are, that they didn't seem to have any military gear, that they didn't even have helmets, like nothing to speak of. And it was quite astonishing. And um, the way he described it, it, it appeared that um, the Russian army would throw in um, a group of um, separatist conscripts um, um, essentially um, to their own death because that, that group of men would be targeted with artillery fire and that would help the Russian forces know where um, the Ukrainian positions are so that they'll be able to tell um, where the artillery fire was coming from. Um, and again, an, another piece of evidence which you know speaks for itself is the latest report by um, the separatist authorities. So these are the casualties that they are admitting. And uh, the most recent one puts the number of um, local men killed in action at, at 2,000 and wounded in action at 8,000, which, um, which is, makes the total of 10,000, which is quite astonishing because the uh, local forces before the start of the war were estimated at 20,000. So we're talking about half of that um, force is already essentially out of action, you know, now three months into the conflict. Well, thank you very much for that. That's an absolutely astonishing, quite a terrifying um, report there. Um, you touched on it briefly, but would you mind telling us a little more about 
this story that it's a recording um, obtained by Ukrainian authorities on uh, which in which they hear um, Russian soldiers um, debating what to do with their Ukrainian prisoners of war, and it, it, it's quite a it's, it's quite a recording. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. But sorry, I was a bit confused earlier on. Um, yeah, that's uh, we're talking about in, uh, in an audio recording released by Ukrainian authorities which appears to show two uh, Russian officers, most likely intelligence officers, describing ways to, quote-unquote, use uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war. And they refer to them um, using um, uh, a slur word um, to refer to Ukrainians and and different other words, which makes it clear that they're talking about Ukrainians captured by Russia. Um, Obviously, prisoners of war are not supposed to be used for free labor or anything like that. Um, but those officers, what they dis- discussed in that call um, is not just using them as, uh, as uh, free labor, but also, as they put it, uh, using them to demine um, minefields in the recently uh, occupied area areas, as they put it, in a natural way. So I guess the idea is just to send off those men into a field and see where mines will go off or not. Again, we don't have an independent confirmation for that. We don't know if um, if anyone has been sent to do things like that. But there is a, so the discussion suggests that um, the Russian command, um, as we know, has a large number of prisoners of war, and they're thinking about ways to use them essentially as free labor. There was there was a discussion about using them to dig trenches, um, uh, do any other fortification work. So essentially, as if as if as free labor. Thanks, Natalia. Just I've got a couple of questions from listeners I'd like I'd like to put to you. Um, but before that, Dom, can I bring you in very quickly just to just to hear your reaction to everything that Natalia has been saying? Well, I'm I'm glad to to say happy to say that I'm still shocked by this. I think that's the the appropriate human response. This is just just appalling. I mean, we we've seen these atrocities before. Uh, I fear we're going to see them again, that, that they are treating people like this speaks of uh, dehumanising the, the other, seeing them as, as expendable. And, and the, I, I'm guessing, Natalia, there was absolutely no conversation between these two guys about any awareness of international law or there, was there any sort of suggestion of, ooh, let's make sure this doesn't come out or, of course, we're going against Geneva Conventions or we shouldn't really be doing this. Any conversation at all that they acknowledged, firstly, their humanity, but also acknowledge that what they were doing was was not against the the rules of law or were they just sort of getting on yeah with absolutely no it was way. it was it was it was brazen and uh they, they spoke about it as a completely natural and normal thing to do well that i mean that just gives strength to the elbow doesn't it to we've got to keep the pressure on we've got to in, in whichever sphere of the world you are you lean into this to a greater or less degree as you as you see fit enabled and yeah, it's just appalling. Cranky. Thanks, thanks for telling a cracking story. Mm-hmm. So I've got a question from Mark. Thank you very much, Mark, for sending this in. He says, and I thought this, I've kept this one for you, Natalia, because I think you're probably best placed to answer it. He says, assuming the conflict in Ukraine devolves into one of attrition, what possible impacts and their timing will the Russian presidential election in March 2024 have on Putin's actions? Well, my short answer would be uh, absolutely no impact at all because Russia hasn't had a free election in years. Uh, Russia may have seen free and fair elections in far-flung regions. Um, Mayors, opposition mayors would be elected here and there. 
but we have not seen if re-election um, for president or for parliament um, in 20 years, essentially. So short answer, no impact at all, because Putin and the Kremlin have an absolute control over um over over so over media over social media and, and society so whatever happened in march is entirely up to vladimir putin whether he decides to run whether he's still around to run so absolutely you know if we if we talk about things going forward uh, what could change um you know kremlin's actions or uh what could have an impact on kremlin rationales it, it's not an election election is just not anything that people in the kremlin worry about Thanks, Ned. Thanks very much, Natalia. And thanks, Mark, for sending in that question. I've just got one more for you, Natalia. This is from um, uh, Ksenia in Australia. Uh, I think this goes on the idea that, well, the, the thought, the question really for many in the West of, of what kind of opposition, if any, exists in Russia to, to Putin. And she asks, she's got quite a few questions, but I'm just going to bring one out. Um, should Ukrainians um, derive any hope from the idea of a revolution in Russia? and the ushering in of a hypothetical non-authoritarian state. So I, I guess it's two-pronged. The second part of the question is, even if Putin was to be deposed somehow, what kind of what kind of regime might we imagine could take its place? Might it be more favourable to Ukraine or, or not? Mm, that's, that, 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 that really is a great question. Um, obviously, you know, if you look at Ukraine, you can see that uh, a democracy isn't built in a day. Uh, what, what we have seen in Ukraine in the past years, in the past eight years, is that um, however imperfect they've been able to build a functioning democracy since the 2014 revolution, just because uh, there was a change of power, one president came after another, and it's a process. Uh, it's At this point, um, with the crackdown on human rights, on freedom of expression, on free elections that we've seen in Russia, it's very hard to see things suddenly change overnight and Russia emerges a flourishing democracy just because Putin is deposed or, um, um, I don't know, dies, driven out of the office. If, say, someone like Alexei Navalny comes to power, um, you know, as, as, as we know, building a functioning democratic state is a lot of work. Um, obviously, what happens in Russia next depends a lot on uh, who comes to succeed Putin, whether it's someone from his inner circle, whether it's an opposition leader like Alexei Navalny. And um, once we see this person, we, we, you know, we need to see what, what kind of a team he or she is going to bring along with them. So, um, I mean, it's not a given. Like a lot, there's the, a lot of things are contingent on, on how Putin goes, on how much control he has, or um, if if no control at all, or if we're just seeing Russia descending into a complete chaotic revolution as, as we saw um, in this country a hundred years ago. Well, thank you very much, Mark and Ksenia, for your questions. And th thank you, Natalia, for answering them so comprehensively. Natalia, is there anything else from you in terms of updates or, or thoughts that you, you think our listeners should know? Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just wanted to add one thing. Um, obviously, the big news today is um, leaders of France and uh, France, Germany and Italy traveling to Kiev, uh, discussing weapons supplies. Um, this is something that's very much uh, watched in Moscow uh, because um, Western weapons supplies um, um, have been one of, the, one of the biggest sore points for the Kremlin. And the Kremlin has been accusing the, the West before the war of, as they put it, pumping up Ukraine with weapons. Um, so, um, you know, let's let, let, let's see how it goes. Let's see, let's see what they promise. Let's see what they deliver. 
Um, but this is something that um, the Kremlin is likely to to react um, um, in um, in quite a sharpened, um, uh, possibly pain, painful way if they see that uh, the West is willing to radically increase the weapon supplies or um, you know pr- provide something with like long um, long range weapons which c- have the potential of reaching Russia's territory. Well, thank you very much, Natalia, for that. Um, Since we're talking about weapons, Dom, you had some thoughts earlier and we were waiting for a a time to to expound on them. Um, Would you like to add to that? Yeah, just to to keep the steady drumbeat of where we are on the numbers. It's so easy to to get swamped in what has been promised, what has been delivered, what is going to be coming down the tracks and so on and so forth. So we do need to sort of update this every few days because things are moving. Thankfully, things are moving very fast. So as I said a few moments ago, uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin hosted the third meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. This was set up three months ago at the, at the start of the war. A, a number of meetings to draw donors in to, to offer equipment mainly, but also ammunition and um, and training and other support. And this one that that, that happened yesterday in Brussels uh, had 50 countries. So so not just not just NATO by any any stretch of the imagination. New countries uh, arriving all the time, and. Uh, and offering stuff, which is which is good. So, as I said, Germany have said that they're going to provide three MLRS, multiple launch rocket systems. That takes the total offered to Ukraine of 10. Uh, that, that's uh, four US HIMARS, the high mobility artillery rocket system, and three M270s each from Germany and UK. They're all multiple launch rocket systems. They can all go up to about 70 kilometers. Um, critically, Germany is also going to supply guided munitions so gmlrs guided multiple launch rocket system munition so this is very very accurate munitions and this is so rather than an area weapon i just sort of splatting a whole a whole grid square and trying to you know hoping you hit stuff and and denying an area to 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 the enemy the guided stuff will actually seek to destroy individual headquarters or individual natures of of equipment so air defense units or artillery systems themselves so it's not just the launchers i mean of course the launcher is absolutely critical to this but it's the munitions as well and the guided munitions are central to that so germany after a lot of the, the criticism that we've spoken about many many times have offered three you know not not megabucks but it's it's the start the start of it hopefully and three is the same as, as britain has said as, as we'll be sending and uh, you know similar to the u.s um, the U.S. also, sorry, also from this meeting, Slovakia are donating four MI-17 uh, troop-carrying he- uh, helicopters. They're going to be replaced by Black Hawks. So I think the U.S. is going to backfill Slovakia with Black Hawks to allow them to, or to encourage them to supply these MI-17s. Slovakia is also donating thousands of Grad rockets, that's artillery rockets. And there's other artillery donations from Canada, Poland, the Netherlands um, and, and elsewhere. This comes on the back uh, Wednesday night. I mean, obviously the, the two were linked. The timing was 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 well rehearsed, but it didn't happen in in Brussels. This was an announcement from the White House. Um, Joe Biden's administration announcing another one billion, big B billion dollar of of munitions and support. So two Harpoon anti ship launchers, Harpoon anti ship missiles are very very capable. And of course, if Ukraine wants to push Russia out of the northwest part of the Black Sea and have any any impact on the Black Sea fleet. These are exactly the kind of things you, you need. So two Harpoon anti-ship launchers, um, an unspecified no, uh, number of GMRS rockets that I spoke about um, previously, uh, and they'll obviously be used on the on the US HIMARS systems. So a load more GMRS rockets. They're sending another 18 M777 howitzers. howitzers these are 155 millimeters, so big, heavy artillery systems that can go 
Uh, oh, Craigie, please correct me, listeners. The triple sevens go 30Ks, I think. Uh, that kind of range, but yeah, big, big, heavy rockets, very, very accurate. They have supplied already, I think, 10 M777s, so another 18. It's great. These are towed. These are not self-propelled, so they can't drive, drive themselves around and get out of trouble as quickly as they get into it. So they are slightly vulnerable. They need another vehicle to move them about, but they are still very, very capable. So 18 M777s, 36,000 rounds of ammunition and, um, and loads, of, loads of secure radios and all the rest of it. Now, this billion dollars came, uh, 350 million of it was from the presidential um, authority to draw equipment from, from U.S. military stocks. And 650 million was from this separate fund called the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. And that uh, USAI is going to be the is it like a, a big pot of money that, that the U.S. have, have built um, into which other other don- uh, donor countries can can provide money if they haven't got equipment, they haven't got. Uh, training grounds or or trainers themselves they can put money into uh into this into this fund and uh, i was with ben wallace the uh, uk defense secretary the last couple of days in in norway and when he was in norway yesterday they announced that the jeff the the 10 nation joint expeditionary force are going to set up another one of these these funds that will be administered by administered by jeff and it was kicked off the um defense minister of of norway kicked off with 400 million krona that's about 33 million million pounds 40 million dollars into this into this fund so you know again big numbers small numbers big numbers make it what you will but it's it's good it's a start and it means that those countries who either can't provide or or feel sort of politically out on a limb by providing weapons or training or something much more overt can just can put money in the pot you know they they don't have to be too too open about their support because they you know some politics differ um all across the world so can't can't blame them for that so just to wrap up that donor conference yesterday it rolled into today's nato defense ministerial meeting uh, where they're not going to necessarily be talking uh, specifics on donor equipment but uh, but it's good to get all the all the right people in the in the room at the same time uh but yeah a lot came out of that meeting yesterday on the back of the extra one billion dollars from the u.s that's great i mean you know, I, I said yesterday joe biden has in the past by, uh, been moderately criticised, including by us, for some of his slightly loose language. We, we, we would hope he'd sort of tighten up some of the some of the rhetoric, um, and in particular on the equipment side, that they've been absolutely out front and and leading. More more artillery rounds would be good. I mean, they, these are some big numbers when we're talking thousands. That that's good. 30, 36,000 rounds of ammunition, but they'll be eaten through very very quickly i think ukraine at the moment are down to firing about five or six thousand a day ten times that amount is coming back at them from from russia now of course accuracy you'd rather have a a a fewer a fewer number of accurate missiles can arguably be be more effective than a huge number of just dumb dumb bombs and artillery flying all over the place um you'd obviously love to have loads but but numbers in and of itself not not absolutely critical to focus on here however there is a there is a, a minimum below which it's really dangerous to go uh, to go any but anywhere below. So these these numbers are good, but there's more 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 artillery rounds, especially and 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 the launchers, but more rounds needed uh, for um, for Ukraine. Just a final question from me, unless Natalia or Dom, you have any other updates that you want to share, would be we know the importance of today's meeting with the European leaders in in Kiev. Um, what what is the best? 
uh, case scenario for Ukraine that could come out of this. Obviously, we don't know the details yet. It's going on as as we speak. So our listeners might be able to test what what we think might be the best case scenario um, compared to what actually what actually does get said and revealed later on today. So I think the best the best thing that can be said is well, we have to as an absolute minimum we have to have all the all the usual calls. And I say usual, and I I mean it with again soft soft criticism. So Macron has already said in Kiev today. He said. Um, France has been alongside Ukraine since day one. Mm. We stand with Uc- the Ukrainians without ambiguity. Ukraine must resist and win. I mean, these are all good, right? These, you want to be hearing these things from these from the world leaders. But in and of themselves, uh, these words, if they're not backed up by actions and backed up by equipment, and if they continue to be backed up by picking the phone up to Putin, they, are, they can be slightly watered down. So as an absolute minimum, we need to have some very, very strong language from um from the European leaders, uh, France, Germany, and Italy, uh, would love to hear something on on equipment, but they they probably wouldn't get themselves, they wouldn't put their hand in that mangle necessarily. It'd be great if they did, but unlikely to. So very very strong language necessary. Um, what was slightly been missed today is that the, the Romanian Prime Minister Klaus Ionis is, is also there now. Romania, very interesting at the moment. There's a lot of talk about how to get the grain out from Ukraine to get the not only get the the um, the blockade lifted or circumvented that, that Russia's put in, but get the grain out to to the to, to the world. You know, twenty two percent of Yemen's grain comes from Ukraine. Forty four percent of grain in Libya comes from Ukraine. So it's absolutely vital to get this stuff out. And in that, Romania may well as a Black Sea facing country could well have a role to play. Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey look like they might be critical to some sort of effort there. Uh, notable today that Turkey says it's going to host a four-way meeting along with the UN, Ukraine and Russia on grain exports. So things are happening there. Romania could be a, a part of that. And it'll be interesting to see when the when the leaders make their comments later, if they just do the, the usual hope for, not, not trying to be too mean here, but you know, hope for strong support for Ukraine. If there's, if there's comments, particularly from Romania, about grain exports and doing something to, to get through the blockade and the Black Sea, that would be very significant indeed. Well, thank you very much, um, Dom. I just ask both of you now, Natalia and Dom. And Natalia, if you're still with us, uh, that'd be brilliant. If not, no worries whatsoever. Any, uh, what are your final thoughts? What should our listeners be thinking of, uh, looking to, paying attention to in the next few days? Yeah, if I if I could uh, if I could take this one up, um, obviously in the last month or so, um, I think we we saw quite a bit of euphoria um, in Ukraine, maybe in the West as well about. Uh, Russian forces getting bogged down in Ukraine about the fact that they're not making any advances. But um, I've also heard uh, military experts calling this possibly one of the most dangerous moments in the war in the sense that, um, as Dom has pointed out, uh, Ukraine is outgunned. Um, and uh, yes, Russia may not be making huge advances in Eastern Ukraine, but it has time on its side. It's not physically running out of ammunition as Ukraine is. And um, um, uh, Ukrainian officials are quite open about it. They, they, they're talking about tweaks and they're um, talking about how um, quickly the ammunition is running out. And um, with that, um, I think there is a certain deadline for Ukraine, either to get more more guns, to get more ammunition, or to um, essentially give up on eastern Ukraine, on uh, losing swathes of um, um, 
of, of the east of its country and possibly see Russian forces advancing even faster, even though they have given up their efforts to take Kiev or to take Kharkiv and other major cities. Um, right now, they still have the biggest advantage on the Eastern Front, which is that they have, at this point, um, uh, a huge supply of ammunition and weapons. And this is not the issue that Russia faces at all. And Dom, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, so my, my final thoughts would just be to, to look at the language that's going to come out in the next uh, 24 hours. So today, as I said, NATO defence ministers meeting in, in Brussels and uh, we've got the European leaders in, in Ukraine today. Of course, these are the first major meetings in the wake of Putin's Peter the Great moment when he, uh, he, he drew the direct parallel or likened himself to Peter the Great. And, um, and this is, the, as I said at the time, I don't think the mask slipped as as. Putin just ripped the mask off and cast it aside. He was saying that this war in Ukraine is about territory. It's about conquest. It's about um, possession. It's nothing to do with legitimate security concerns, nothing to do with denazification, although they'll still continue to use that language, nothing to do with, with, with you know, NATO's encroachment and X, Y and Z. So the Peter the Great speech, I, I think, is quite fundamental. This is the first big these are the first big meetings or first big events of world leaders in the wake of it. So uh, it'd be very interesting to see the language that comes out both from NATO, about how NATO seeks to transform itself uh, and reshape for, for the threat that, uh, that has revealed itself. Um, and also the, the four leaders, Romania, Italy, France, Germany, in Kyiv today, listen to their words, see what they say, see if they're still hanging on to the this sort of tired old mantra of, of support for Ukraine, as welcome as that is, but we, we are beyond that now. And their words need to be very, very, very closely tied to action. Earlier, I spoke to Inna Sovson. Inna is a member of the Ukrainian parliament, deputy head of the Holos party, liberal, pro-European. She was the first deputy minister of education and science between 2014 and 2016. We spoke about the diplomatic visit to Kyiv by the European leaders and what Ukrainians really wanted from it. We also spoke about how Ukrainian schools are teaching their pupils about the Russian invasion. Inna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background in Ukraine? Uh, sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, so I'm a member of parliament uh, representing a liberal Holos party. I was elected in uh, three years ago, uh, summer uh, 2019. Um, there was uh, uh, a bit of unexpected turn of events for myself because literally two months uh, before that, I was uh, in the United States. I was a Fulbright scholar at uh, UC Berkeley because uh, my background is, is education and I'm a university professor and I still continue to teach in two universities uh, in uh, Ukraine. And uh, uh, before that, also, I did serve as first Deputy Minister of Education and Science of Ukraine since 2014-2016, two and a half years of a very uh, crazy life experience. So let's talk about the war. How did your life change um, from February to now? And what have you found yourself doing? It changed completely. Since the first day of war, 
Uh, I had to take care of, of uh, well, very personal issues like relocating my son. My ex-husband uh, was, was doing that, his, his father. He got uh, uh, him to the Western Ukraine. And for the first month, I was not able to see him because I was staying in Kyiv. But again, I was not able to stay at my place because my place is north of the city. And as, as you well know, the Russians were coming from the north. Uh, so so Irpin is literally 20 minutes drive from my home. So, so staying here did not seem like the best option, but I was staying with some friends in the south part of the city. And basically, I suddenly found myself uh, uh, talking to the world media all the time, uh, talking to the foreign members of parliament, uh, anyone willing to talk, just explaining what is happening uh, over here in Ukraine. At the same time, of course, being crazily worried about uh, my boyfriend who was uh, who re -mob he mobilized back to the army. He served before, but then he I knew he would go back in case uh, things happen. Um, so I was trying to keep sane uh, for for the sake of doing the interviews and then you know uh, talking to the uh, to to the uh, members of parliament, uh, activists all over the world. Uh, but of course, uh, I'm in constant fear for for his life primarily. Uh, I'm now uh, back in Kyiv. I'm, I'm traveling back. Uh, I'm traveling to the western Ukraine from time to time to see my son. Um, as of right now, I'm in Kyiv, um, and I did travel a little bit um, uh, to, to Western Europe, uh, again, for different meetings uh, with different delegations um, in several Western European countries. And when you go on these delegations, what kind of things are you telling the, the Western politicians? And I'm, I'm kind of curious to understand what don't, what don't they understand? What do you have to really explain to them? I think adding a bit of a human uh, story is important. They need to realize that it's not some abstract war. It's a war where people are disconnected from their families, where they have uh, their loved ones uh, constantly under threat. Um, and I think telling those, those personal stories is more important. But then also it, it would seem like everyone knows about what is happening in Ukraine. But I think that, um, uh, that putting that into focus uh, making them, you know, sit in front of you and listen to you for half an hour, sometimes an hour, sometimes 15 minutes, it depends. But that really focuses their attention. And then, uh, yeah, we, we have to tell about what is happening here. Well, particularly after after Bucha and Irpin, we have to be telling this. But then there are many other stories which are uh, kind of smaller, if you can put it this way. But uh, but they're not so much in the in the media but I have to be talking about them. I'll, I'll give you an example. I was invited to speak um, at an event uh, organized by Times Higher Education Rankin, and they invited me um, to speak about higher education in Ukraine uh, during the times of war. And that issue, of course, has not been largely covered by the media. It's, it's a rather specific issue. So so, so I went to, to that audience to talk about uh, what is happening to universities. I was telling about a friend of mine who's uh, who's got a PhD in physics. He's a great physicist and a rather famous blogger, uh, blogging about uh, science policy mainly. And he's been uh, helping with evacuating people from Irpin and Bucha during the whole um, march. Um, and then there are some stories from people in the south of Ukraine, like again, Kherson, uh, which has been occupied basically since day one of the war. People live in there under constant threat, yet going out to the streets to protest against what is happening there. 
that those are again the, the rather untold stories, but they, they need to be explained. But then I think there are also bigger issues which people do not necessarily understand. Uh, I'll give you another example. One uh, member of parliament uh, from one, uh, let's say, Western European country asked me, so what if you agree to a neutrality status? That was uh, at the very beginning of the war. And I said, you see, we were neutral in 2014 when the war started. That was officially part of our constitution. It said that we are a neutral, non-allied state. And Putin annexed Crimea and started the war in Donbass, which in eight years killed 14,000 people. Again, something that is often forgotten in this story, because we had 14,000 deaths in, in, in eight years of war before February 2022. Uh, so, so that is why a non-allied neutral status is not going to work for us, because Russians will always want uh, to attack us. Because of two reasons. Number one is history, because historically they have been um, trying to destroy Ukrainian nation. Uh, the famous Great Famine, which we call Holodomor of 1932-33, which killed several million Ukrainians. Uh, the, 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 you know, the, the Russian Empire policy of, of forbidding Ukrainian language forbidden teaching that in, in schools, uh, burning Ukrainian books. Uh, the whole all, uh, is part of our history, which people do not necessarily know. So, so partially it's because they hate us as, as Ukrainians, but partially because they hate what we are trying to become, which is a modern European state uh, with uh, democracy, with respect to human rights, and they're seeing that as a threat. So those are the two issues that they uh, that are the reasons why they will always try to attack us. And that is why being non-allied state is not going to work for us. Can we talk about um, the visit today? So we're, so just for our listeners, we're talking on Thursday, Thursday morning. Uh, we've just seen the news that uh, Mario Draghi, um, Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron and the Romanian president have all um, travelled to Kiev this morning. Can I ask you, obviously we're, we're talking slightly before we know what's being discussed. So what's the, what's the mood amongst Ukrainians um, when you talk to family and friends and pe- you know, pe- people around you? What's the mood towards, towards these leaders as they come to Kiev? Well, uh, I, I would be completely honest with you. We are rather sceptical about uh, their response and we do not think that their response raises to the level of threat that the whole Europe, uh, Ukraine as well, but the whole Europe is facing. And I think that they continue to be in denial about uh, what is happening here. And I think that is very dangerous. And I very much hope that right now, as we are recording this, they are in Irpin. And, and they will see what the Russians did to a lovely town near Kiev, again, 20 minutes drive from my home. I want them to see how Russians were just bombarding uh, living quarters where no military were, uh, where people were trying to hide. Um, and, and, and they will have to see this and to face it. They will see uh, the, um, you know, the places where people were burying their neighbors, uh, in, literally near their houses. And there are uh, those uh, small uh, plates, uh, we call it plates, yeah, where they say like the name of the person and, and the date of, of death. That is what people were dealing with in the European capital in 2022. I want them to see that and to feel how scary that is. And I want them to realize that they have no moral right to continue saying things like Macron's side, which trust me was, was very badly taken here in Ukraine, like let's not humiliate Russians. Because uh, after what happened in Bucha and Irpin, he just he, these things cannot be pronounced out loud. 
because uh, of the victims, because of the respect for the victims of, of um, what has happened. So we do want them to understand the realities of war, to stop being in denial. But then, of course, we want some practical results from it. And there are three major issues that we are talking about. Is first of all, weapons supply. That is issue number one. Unfortunately, as of right now, Russians have superiority, which in some areas is, is one to ten compared to the Ukrainian forces. And, and no matter how brave our soldiers are, uh, your bravery doesn't save you from Russian artillery. So, so weapons is issue number one. Uh, number two is, of course, right now we are expecting the decision on the candidacy status for the uh, EU membership for Ukraine. And we, of course, hope for a positive decision on the candidacy. And issue number three is microfinancial help. Unfortunately, because of this war, Ukrainian economy is, is going down. Uh, we are having trouble paying salaries, um, our, the, the salaries of teachers, of doctors. Uh, we are paying the military men and women, but still um, the, the salaries of, of MPs has been put cut down like, like five times or something. So, 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 so we are in, in a deep economic trouble, and that is um, issue number three that I believe President will be talking about. And then... In addition to that, of course, uh, the Russians, uh, the sanctions against Russia, which are still dragging so, so slowly. And we want to hear explanations of uh, why is that so? So just for our listeners um, who will probably be listening to this af- after this meeting has happened, after we've heard what's, um, what's been decided, what for you would be a failure? Well, I think a failure would be if, if uh, uh, we end up with some very general statements uh, like uh, in the morning when Macron arrived, uh, he said that uh, I came with a message of unity and support for Ukrainians. Well, those are nice words, but literally our friends, our family members are in uh, under threat right now on the East. We don't want words of support. We want weapons. We want some very concrete decisions uh, about weapon supplies. Uh, but that's issue number one. So I think a failure would be if they leave without any specific decisions and specific promises of support to Ukraine. Of course, not everything can be said publicly, uh, and we understand that. But I hope that they will um, make it clear what their real position is and if it has changed uh, after visits to Kyiv and Erbin. You said earlier you've spent a lot of time talking to the international media. Um, from your perspective, what is there anything you find frustrating or, or just plain wrong about the coverage of, of the war? Uh, well, truth be told, uh, not so much. Uh, again, that depends. Uh, in some countries, uh, I could clearly see uh, how Russian propaganda has taken its toll. Uh, like there are some, some obvious suspects, uh, for instance, uh, participating in Italian TV shows. They would always have someone representing the so-called other side. You know, someone, you know, for the balance of views, uh, if there is a balance of views in this particular situation. Uh, with the German media, I would say the situation was a bit different, but they still were uh, were trying to ask questions about, uh, lots of questions about, like, ceasefire. Do you want to go for ceasefire? Uh, because we want this gun, you know, this issue gun altogether. Uh, but, but, of course, the, the, the most frustrating were uh, the... I wouldn't say frustrating, but the most frustrating experience was talking to Chinese and Indian media. Uh, they were very largely pro-Russian uh, to a very big extent, um, and we could clearly see how they are actually um, under Russian propaganda so very much and under Russian influence so very much. So, so, so truth be told, uh, just by doing so many interviews, I could clearly see 
the real uh, situation on the ground in different countries in relation to, to the war in Ukraine. Uh, but I would say that uh, even in the countries where the, in, in the Western European countries where the situation was a bit um, un uncertain for a while, uh, like Italy, for instance, I think the coverage has changed uh, and turned uh, more favorable towards Ukraine as the war progresses and more, more evidence of crimes um, appears. So can I just ask you, um, earlier you said, you know, your boyfriend is out um, fighting um, in the army. From a personal perspective, like how, how often are you, are you able to keep in contact? Um, can, you, can you text? Do you call? Like how, how does it actually work? Uh, we can text. Uh, I cannot call him because his connection is not good enough and also it's not very safe. Uh, from time to time, he says, um, I'll be away for a couple of days. I wouldn't be able to text you back. Uh, so those are the most difficult days when I slightly go crazy when that is happening. Uh, so, so that happens as well. Uh, he did come to Kyiv a couple of times. So I did get to see him for like two, three hours, um, I think three or four times since the, uh, the beginning of this uh, war. Um, but uh, yeah, typically we are able to text. Sometimes the, the, the texting is just uh, I'm writing him plus and a question mark and he responds as plus. That means that I'm alive. Um, yeah, that is uh, uh, how it functions right now. And um, please feel free to, if you don't want to answer this next question, I completely understand. We can we can edit it out. But you talked about your son. How, how do you talk to him about what's going on? Um, do you, do you, have you found a strategy or a way to do it? Uh, well, uh, I do try to talk to him. I believe he's grown up enough uh, to understand. And also he needs an explanation why he's living with relatives, not with his uh, mom or his dad. Um, I, I did try to talk to him. Uh, truth be told, uh, not always successful. Because uh, once I did try to show him the reality of war, as much as, as, as a kid of his age is able to take, and I uh, wanted to show him a picture of a Russian tank in a village uh, where uh, my parents live because the Russian tanks were going through that village and there were some battles in that uh, village. My parents were not, uh, my mom was not there at the time, my dad was. Uh, um, but I wanted just to show him that, you, you know, this is real and these are the Russian tanks. You see, this is the street where we walked uh, and then you were by, uh, like like uh, riding your bike. Um, and uh, I said like, uh, so you look at this, uh, do you recognize the street? Uh, and he looks at me and he, his eyes, uh, get, uh, I can see he's, he's really scared. He says like, oh no, don't tell me that grandma is dead. And I was like, okay, I should have led with that, that your grandparents are fine, but this is what happened. So, so, so well, a pedagogical failure on my side for not uh, starting with the recognition of the fact that, that his grandparents, my parents are fine, but, uh, but he got really scared. And then, uh, yeah, from time to time, I do try to explain that to him. Um, also, his school is doing some work in terms of explaining uh, what is happening. And then there are some um, some ways how, um, yeah, the government and the society is trying to make that um, uh, explainable to the children. For instance, uh, we need to explain to the kids that um, uh, vast territories of Ukraine are mined. Uh, land mined around Kiev, uh, you know, Irpin, Bucha, it's all mined uh, and it's it's not safe to go to the forest, to the field, the, the whatever, it's, it's extremely dangerous. And um, there is uh, a dog which is helping the mining teams uh, and his name is Patron, 
um, and uh, uh, he is uh, he became kind of a local celebrity so so uh, parents are using this dog uh, to explain to kids uh, like what he is doing uh, and by showing the dog we explain the danger of mines and how they need to be careful and, and so on and so forth so, so that's how we try to Sorry, just a, a final question from me. You mentioned that the schools are starting to tell, teach children. How, how are they doing that? What, what, what kind of methods are they using? Well, uh, of course, the schools are only functioning online. So, so it's not, um, re, you know, not offline studying, uh, which is not possible, at least uh, right now. Uh, but his school restarted, I think, two weeks into the war which truth be told was a great relief because uh, at least we know we knew that they are doing something useful they are not uh, sitting there scared and and uh, hearing air raids all the time um, but uh, he, uh, yeah so the, uh, his school and I, again I cannot speak for other schools uh, that much but his school has uh, actually started a class which they're taking every day after their regular classes, but an additional 45 minutes or so, uh, which is called uh, Ukraine is Us. And they are studying some, some you know, smaller issues, like like some tits and bits of, of, of the history, uh, you know, the geography of Ukraine, those are the national instruments, those are some songs, learn some songs. And this is the story about the, this patron, the dog, who is helping to demine. And this, um, um, and, and they, every, oh, by the way, that's important because that's something that all the schools are doing. Every morning at nine o'clock when they start studying, uh, they have uh, uh, one minute of silence uh, to remember the fallen heroes. And they know that very well. And then I asked him, like, um, to, just to make sure he understands what is happening. And he says, uh, yes, that's to, you know, to remember people who are now fighting uh, for us against those, uh, and I quote, damn Russians, uh, so that um, we uh, pay respects. So, so that is something that uh, all schools are doing. But in terms of specifics, I think schools have a bit of autonomy in how they address that. But I think it's still important uh, for kids to, to understand what is happening as much as it, uh, uh, it's possible for their age. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.